for coming, um, particularly those of you who are not accustomed to being with us on Wednesday night. I, I appreciate you um, accepting my pastoral invitation uh, because I um, I may be alone uh, in in concerns that I have concerning our upcoming move. I, I don't think I am alone, but um, I just felt like it's necessary for us to... Uh, uh, begin to prepare ourselves for what may be a real shock to our system. And uh, what I want is to make sure that the shock to our system is all enjoyable, the, the, something that we can celebrate uh, and celebrate fully in the midst of this move that we're about to make. Um, if you were not with us, oh, by the way, just one other, because I mentioned this last week. I, I found this, this was a note that was in my box today. And um, uh, I know this man, he does not go to church here, but he, uh, I guess, I did not know this, he lives in the neighborhood, but drove by here and left this note in my box. Jimmy, you know I've watched the facilities of grace grow at this location from the beginning. It does my heart proud to see that magnificent steeple rise toward heaven. It's a blessing to the neighborhood. I trust that God is pleased. That's the third one we've gotten uh, concerning just putting that steeple out there, which um, uh, is also interesting to me. <clears throat> if you were not able to be with us last week, what I want to do is just kind of give you a, a hint of what we chatted about last week. And then if you were with us last week, it'll just give us a refreshing uh, refresh or course about what we spoke about last week. This is a book... Um, uh, by Kent Hughes. I think it's a name that many of you know. He's written, in fact, he has 12 books in print. The one that is uh, the most known by most of us is uh, The Disciplines of a Godly Man. Maybe you've got that in your library. But Kent Hughes is the pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, and quite well respected in the evangelical community. And he wrote a book entitled, Are Evangelicals Born Again? Kind of a catchy uh, uh, little title. <clears throat> But um, he, he's basically <clears throat> uh, trying to address a situation that I mentioned last week. And, um, and I want to read you just, um, just kind of a... And I'm going to have to explain some words to you as we go. You know, I'm, I'm only going to read about six sentences, so don't, don't worry. Uh, don't go to sleep yet. But um, let me just give you his, uh, his kind of a proposition for this book. Evangelicals have drunk unconsciously from a loose set of attitudes and ideas known as modernity. Have you ever heard that word modernity? Um, it's, it's really, a, a, as he said, a loose set of attitudes and ideas known as... That's what it is. It's a loose set of attitudes and ideas uh, concerning uh, how, really, how... Uh, technology has been so absorbed by our culture and depended upon and scientific advance and all that business. But what he's saying is evangelicals have drunk unconsciously from this, these ideas known as modernity. Now, guys, evangelicals, that would be us. Uh, as you may or may not know, the name of our church is Grace Evangelical Church. Now, one of the things that Ken Hughes is saying is one of the evidences of modernity inside the church is a retreat into self and self-theologies and self-promotions and self-concerns. And then he quotes this guy 
who is another one that sees it like he does, and I see it like they do, where he says, the fascination with self and with human subjectivity has become a well-established cultural feature of evangelicalism. Um, a fascination with self and human subjectivity has become a well-established feature of us? I certainly hope not. But it's those things that I alluded to last week, like the customer is king. Give them what they want. Um, you have a group of consumers, and you've got to make sure that you're giving the consumer what he wants to pay for. As long as you keep them coming and keep them giving, you're, um, you're, you're doing a good job. Well, um, that's, that's his concern, is that modernity has crept into the church, and you can see it in this emphasis and this um, drift towards concerns about self-knowledge. Now, I've got three sentences to read you. I'm finished out of, out of this book. Um, but two of the sentences are pretty long, so I, I, I just want you to bear with me. Contemporary evangelical, that's us, contemporary evangelicalism's assimilation of modernity's self-focus has had a telling fact, effect on its theology. Because when the emphasis shifts from God to self, theology becomes anthropology. Man becomes the beginning point of theology rather than God. This has become widely evident as many evangelical pulpits have abandoned biblical exposition for the homiletics of consensus. Now, did you get that? I mean, that's not... Those are, you know, got more than two syllables, which is really hard for Andy Harvey. Um, but, um... <laughs> you know, I'll try to find the English word for those. But, I mean, it's not that tough. Listen. Become widely evident as many evangelical pulpits have abandoned biblical exposition for the homiletics of consensus. Preaching the bromides of the therapeutic age for felt needs as determined by the pollster's analysis. Did you get that? The pulpit being turned into a place where theology becomes anthropology and in um, abandoning biblical exposition and preaching the bromides of the therapeutic age for felt needs. That is, find out what the needs of your people are. Like if it's stress, then for heaven's sakes, teach them how to deal with stress. Um, if they are concerned about financial things, then for heaven's sakes, use the pulpit to help them walk through these troubled financial times. Preach self. Preach felt needs. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's what I tried to... I, mean, in, in, I didn't say all that last week, but that's what I was aiming at last week. That in this, in this period where we're about to experience some real 
some real exciting, enjoyable, celebrational events. And if growth happens to occur, there is a, a, uh, a tendency to form a perception that growth becomes all-important. Well, ladies and gentlemen, what I suggested last week and what I want to reaffirm this week is um, growth is not all-important. Uh, a certain kind of growth is all-important to us, but not, not numerical growth. And, and I don't want you ever to come to the place where your perception is, oh, well, all they care about around here is numbers. That has not happened to us. By God's grace, it will not happen to us. Uh, it is not something that the staff or the elders have spent 20 minutes on in five years concerning about how we can get more people. Now, that was last week. And that, I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, is who we are not. That's not who we are. And as we close tonight, I want to read you something from Spurgeon that I hope will summarize who we are. But again, remember I opened by saying perception is reality. And perception sometimes is the cruelest form of reality. And so what I want to address tonight is the issue of change. Because one of the things that might create wrong perceptions is the, uh, the abundance of change that we are about to experience and people have a natural resistance to change. Change, even positive change, like this is, produces stress. Have y'all ever seen this? I know many of you have. But uh, to me, it's kind of comical. The University of Washington, University of Washington School of Medicine, um, a school of medicine now, put together what they called uh, the Social Readjustment Rating Scale. And they identified certain changes that face us all. And they, they gave them numerical values as to, they called them life change units. And, and then they, they had 43 little items here. They assigned, for instance, the worst possible life change unit, because it has the greatest value. A hundred life change units would be the death of a spouse. And then it goes down. But that's a very negative thing, ladies and gentlemen. And, and they say, if you add up your life change units and they're between 200 and 300, that you have a 50% greater chance of a major illness next year than the others of us who haven't experienced this kind of change. But the interesting thing to me is how positive things are listed on here as um, traumatic. Vacation. <laughs> but boy, don't we know that. Tent vacation. Oh, we look forward and plan for it and spend thousands of dollars and it's nothing but trauma. <laughs> Here's another one. Christmas. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? I mean, you know, some of us have gotten to the age where it's like, oh no, it's another Christmas. I mean, I, I know that you love seeing those little ones run around, and I, I do too. I've got some to run around now. But, um, but what they're saying is that those are... Traumatizing. Change can be traumatizing. And by the way, we both, all of us face vacations and Christmases, so we've all got 25 points to start with. 
you hadn't got but another 175 to play with, folks, or you're in big trouble. But um, um, here's another one, real positive. Pregnancy. Boy, some of you are in big trouble. <laughs> um, I think of poor Randy um, Pierce. Man, that wasn't just a pregnancy. <laughs> um, but uh, how about major change in financial status? Every one of us have faced that. Every one of us are experiencing that. Have you checked your 401k lately? I haven't. <laughs> I don't know where to look. <laughs> Somebody's got it out there, and, and I hope they're taking care of it. But um, we've all, you know, this, this thing costs people a trillion dollars, I understand, in, in 401k value. Um, how about a son or daughter leaving home? Ah. Oh. Now, some of you have, but I, I experienced that twice, and I didn't like it either time. All I'm trying to say is, ladies and gentlemen, stress or, or, or change, whether positive or negative, can produce trauma. Now, we're about to undergo a real positive thing. But I don't think it's more positive than Christmas. And if Christmas is stressful, this could be stressful for us, too. And that, that grieves me that we could miss out on some of the enjoyment of this, this positive change just because we resist change um, in some degree. One man says that change comes more slowly for churches that do not have a tradition of change. You know, I, I really think we've got that. That is, I think we have a tradition of change here. Now, 50 years from now, when we're all dead and they're all just, you know, those pews are cracking in there. Uh, you know, they may have some trouble, but I do think we have a tradition of change among us. But my concern is not so much about the trauma that change produces. My, my greater concern is that change produces a perception change as well. Will things change? Yes, emphatically. Yes. Things are about to change. Um, you want you want to you want just a just a, a small few illustrations, gang. Sitting in that sanctuary and worshiping there is going to have an enormously different feel to it. You're going to go from you know from when we were at Murray Road, we went from ten foot ceilings to twenty foot ceilings. Now we're about to go to 60-foot ceilings. It's going to feel different. Um, it's not going to be full. We couldn't possibly. I mean, uh, it's going to look good. You know, gosh, there's not very many people here, you know. You're going to try to sing into this thing. And, um, you know, it's going to feel different. You know, um, we've, this, this building that is almost finished, not the sanctuary, but this, uh, this um, transitional area out there, you know, we have been we have been accused of being cliquish before. Oh my goodness! Now we've got a building to encourage our cliques. I mean, we're going to have a men's ministry uh, uh, kiosk over here, and you're going to have the women's over here, and you're going to have the information booth over here, and you're going to have the you know the uh, athletic ministries over, and everybody can just gravitate to you know where they feel comfortable. And you got 6,400 square feet to avoid other people. You think we were unfriendly before? Oh my! We're really going to be unfriendly now. Because now we got all this room to kind of avoid each other, you know? 
that's a change. I remember when we were at Murray Road, one of the nice things about Murray Road were the halls. They were about that wide. And so you had six people trying to go down on them at the same time, and I'm telling you, you got friendly with folks. Um, of necessity. I mean, we were bumping into people all over the place, and, and it was kind of fun, you know? Just kind of, as I understand it, I don't get to enjoy it, but I understand that the, the bookstore area on Sunday morning is really a fun place because people are kind of bouncing up against each other and everything, and out there, you know, you're not going need, to need to bounce. Uh, people are going to be more, it's going to have a different feel to it. The location of the pulpit. Ladies and gentlemen, our, um, our building committee, uh, do you see, have you noticed how the building is shaped? It's a fan shape. And it's not much deeper. It's not, I think, seven or eight rows deeper than that building. Like if that's 21 rows, this is 28 rows or something like that. It's not that much deeper. Now, it's a lot wider. It's not that much deeper because one of their concerns was to keep people as close to all of the saliva that comes out of my mouth um, on a weekly basis. I mean, we call it the Shamu section. Um, but guys, it is, it is not going to be as close. I am going to be further away. And I don't like that. I, I, you know, I feel comfortable being in your lap. And it's going to feel different. It's gonna, he's going to be higher and he's going to be further back. And that's, that just doesn't feel right. Um, worship times. Ladies and gentlemen, worship times are about to change. We're going to go to a different worship time. We're going to try to pick up five minutes to get announced. You know, what we're finding, like this last Sunday, well, it was two Sundays ago, um, it's uh, 20 minutes to 10 before we ever get to be started because we had announcements. We're going to 9.25 and a 10.50 worship service. Oh, no, five minutes. That's going to just push me over the edge. <laughs> Guys, um, one of the things that we've, we've kind of developed a couple of uh, nicknames uh, across the years, and one of the nicknames that we used to have back over there was that we were the basement church. And then we were the... Donut church. But let me tell you guys, we ain't the basement church anymore. Basement, basement days are over. And some of you are going to look back and say, oh, I miss the basement church. It's going to change. Howard Hendricks says that about 16% of every church is not open to change. Um... That 16% has a favorite song, at least a favorite line of hymnody, and it goes like this. Who were and art and evermore shall be. That's their favorite line. There was a book years ago that y'all are too young to remember. But the title of the book was The, the Seven Last Words of the Church. And the, the subtitle was, We've Always Done It That Way. <laughs> for, for 16% of you, you're going you're gonna to be wrestling with, well, dead gummit, we've always done it that way. Um, change, change is traumatic. It can produce some, some real uh, 
uh, weird perceptions. In the midst of all the trauma, guys, you'll be tempted to look back and say, oh, man, I miss the days when we were just crowded in a room and, you know, now it's... You know, and all of that's not bad. A little bit of, uh, you know, pining. It's, it's just when that pining becomes bitterness and resentment. Um, that we develop perceptions that don't match reality and one of the things that helps create those perceptions is the, the abundance of change that we're about to experience. Folks, um, I didn't like it at all when my two daughters left me and uh, went off and got married and now I got another one that's about to get married and, well, actually, there's, that's between us. Um, <clears throat> I know y'all can keep a secret. <laughs> Oh, my wife would kill me. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't like it. When, you know, and, and, and that was a very positive. Do you know that I, I told you this before, but in my, the first wedding, when Gracie got married, I didn't cry. I wailed at it. And at the end of it, I had wailed so dramatically, I had to apologize to the attendants or the, the, uh, the guests assuring them that I really did like the man that my wife was marrying. I mean, my daughter was marrying. Uh, I love the man my wife married. <laughs> He's a great guy. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't like it. And then in the second wedding, my wife had to leave her chair and bring Kleenex up to us and tell us to cut it out and, and pull yourselves together and... You know. I didn't like it, and, but, but it was very positive, positive change. It's just when the, I mean, I, I can, I have, a, I guess, a right not to like it, but I don't have the right to become bitter and resentful. That's my concern is, well, you know, it's never going to be like it was, you know, back in the house, and I used to love to see the girls running around and having a good time, and, and you know, back in those days when, when the, you know, they all came home, and, you know, my, there are, in the life of Gracie and Megan, two men or a man in each of their lives that they love more than they love me. Dead gummum. I, I don't like that. And yet, guys, the change is good. And it's just when it moves over into resentment or some kind of uh, bitter pining that, you know, guys, change occurs everywhere. I read a statistic recently that we have only 3% of the knowledge today that, of that, what we will have in 2015. Goodness gracious. That, that's, that's scary. But that's what change produces. Now, now, let me go back. I asked a moment ago, will things change? Yes. The answer is yes. Get ready for it, guys. This will be great fun. This will be great fun. But, will people change? It depends on, um, on what you mean by that question. Will people change more and more into the likeness of Christ? We sure hope so. But if you mean by that question, will people change? If you mean by that question what two folks meant when they asked me recently... Well, I guess we'll have to call you Dr. Young now. You're going to wear a robe? 
Do you think we'll be able to get any time with the Pope? Do you understand my concern? <laughs> Do you think we'll be able to get any time with the Pope? Because we know what's going to happen to him. He's going to get so uppity that nobody will be able to reach him. Yes. Um, if moving into that building makes me or anybody else uppity, then may God have mercy on all of us. But that's a perception. It's a perception. Oh, my goodness. You know, don't you? you know. That's a perception. And it doesn't match reality. Um, just because the pulpit is further back and the ceilings are taller and there's a wonderful place where we can fellowship doesn't automatically make people uppity, does it? Um, if this change that we're about to enjoy makes any of us high-minded, then the only thing that we can do is repent. Because it's sin. It's sin on your part. It's sin on my part. And no, I'm not going to wear a robe. <laughs> um, let me address that uppity thing. Because, guys, uh, smarter men than I have, have noticed that Winston Churchill, this is a quote that Bill and I used to love to banter about, but um, Winston Churchill said, uh, and, he, and he said this at the dedication of one of the new houses of Parliament. He said, and I quote, First we make our buildings, and then our buildings make us. Is that going to happen to us? Is that going to happen to me? That we make the building, and then the building places a molding pressure on us such that we become papal. Well, if that happens, we need to repent. God help us. Because if that's what I... Uh, if that's what I've done to you, I've really sinned against you. That is, led you to build a sanctuary so that I can wear a robe. It just—it is not true, ladies and gentlemen. Um, George McDonald, who is was C.S. Lewis's mentor, George McDonald. I mean, that means if he's a mentor to C.S. Lewis, that none of us in this room will understand a word he wrote. But um, he he wrote, "In whatever man does without God, he must fail miserably, or succeed." more miserably. <laughs> Do you get that? That is, if God isn't what in what we're doing, ladies and gentlemen, we may just succeed and it'll be a, a, an evidence of not His blessing, but His curse. We can, if we don't do it with God, we must fail miserably or succeed more miserably. John Henry Jowett said, privilege never confers security. It rather provides the conditions of the fiercest strife. This, that which is privileged to us, ladies and gentlemen, doesn't, doesn't mean we're safe now. What it provides for us is the conditions of the fiercest strife. We're going to get in the battle. 
and the battle may get hotter. That's what we long for. That's a good thing. Now, I've got ten more minutes. Let me tell you some things that won't change. Okay? Number one, our views of the Scripture. We will never become disseminators of anthropology and human opinion. Ladies and gentlemen, the greatest, the greatest tool that God has given to us to grow up His people is not my wit. It is this book, and it will forever be at the center of my ministry and the ministry of every person on this staff. You can go to the bank. People are valued at, on staff here because they can handle this book. And the elders support that. That is, they look to create ways as to how we can do our jobs of handling this book better. Whatever you need to be able to handle this book better, that's what they want to provide for us. That'll never change. Secondly, our doctrinal conservatism, or at what you could call an evangelical stance, ladies and gentlemen, we ain't going anywhere. What we are today, what we were on Murray Road, we will be in the 60-foot ceilings. Everything that you have heard from the pulpit over and from lecterns all across this building for 11 years, you will continue to hear. You do not need fear that you're now going to be placed in a position where uh, we've got to turn theology into anthropology. Don't, don't let that cross your mind. Thirdly, something that will not change. <clears throat> Guys, I love saying this because I love this word. We are not and never will be a slick church. Now, let me, let me warn you about something. <clears throat> Do you know that in that sanctuary there are two screens? Do you know there's a screen on both sides of the pulpit? Well, he can do a PowerPoint presentation now. Never. Never. Now, if you like PowerPoint presentations in the pulpit on Sunday morning, then you probably won't like what I'm going to do. Because first of all, I don't know how to work PowerPoint. But we are not trying to produce slick technocrats. Uh, some of you may know Jay Benson. Jay Benson is a physician in Clarksville, Mississippi, but he kind of came out of this church, and uh, his parents are still in this church, and he married a girl. Um, I married them years ago, and he went off to the Air Force and went through med school, and he's just a dear guy. But uh, they, were, they moved to Denver, Colorado, and they were looking for a church. And they just went from church to church to church and never could find a church. And he, he said to me, you know, Jimmy, I came to the place where I knew when I walked in the front door, if I saw colored gels, we weren't going to stay. You know what a colored gel is? You know, you got the spotlights with the colored gels. You know, you're flashing up on the, you know, you got all the little uh, spotlights roaming in the reds and the greens. Well, guys... You don't have to worry about colored gels. But let me tell you why we put screens up. The primary motive behind the screen is to enhance worship. What we're hoping is that you do not have to... 
look down to sing, but that you can look up and engage and give yourself to the process and activity of worship. There will be announcements on it before the service starts, yes. But it's not up there so that we can draw squigglies and show you how cute we can be on a computer. That'll be different. But I hope you know the reason we're doing it. Guys, um, um, somebody is going to say, no doubt, we're just not the same church we used to be. And you know what? That absolutely thrills me. I hope we're not the same church we used to be. Because there are two areas, ladies and gentlemen, that I would love to see us change considerably. The first one, as you know, I've stated this before in public. I'm still committed to it. If I, I said to you, if you continue to ask me to be the senior pastor of this church, there's two places where I want to take you. One of them is that we take more of our resources and direct them away from ourselves. That means more of the money is not spent on us and it's spent on, just for broad-term missions. But ladies and gentlemen, I must tell you, we had a horrible October. Horrible, financially. The church did. That's one thing I hope will change so that we can devote more of our resources away from us. Secondly, I hope this changes. I want to see a greater intensity to reach lost men. More outreach, more efforts on our part to reach non-Christians. Ladies and gentlemen, I pray for you just about every morning that not only I would gain a burden for lost men, but that you would gain a burden for lost men. I hope, ladies and gentlemen, that our burden for lost people increases dramatically. Oh, yes, I hope we change. I hope we change in those two ways and maybe even many others. Now, guys, I read you from Kent Hughes about what we're not. I want to read you, and with this we'll close. I want to read you from Spurgeon because this is who we are. This is who we're not. This is who we are. Listen. I believe that the best, surest, and most permanent way to fill a place of worship is to preach the gospel. And to preach it in a natural, simple, interesting, earnest way. The gospel itself has a singularly fascinating power about it. And unless impeded by an unworthy deliverer or by some other great evil, it will win its own way. It certainly did so at the first. And what is to hinder it now? Like the angels, it flew upon its own wings. Like the dew, it tarried not for man, neither waited for the sons of men. The gospel has a secret charm about it, which secures a hearing. It casts its good spell over human ears, and they must hearken. It is God's own word to men. It is precisely what human necessities require. 
It commends itself to man's conscience and sent home by the Holy Spirit, it wakes an echo in every heart. In every age, the faithful preaching of the good news has brought forth hosts of men to hear it, made willing in the day of God's power, decked in the glories of free and sovereign grace, wearing the crown royal of the covenant and the purple of atonement, the gospel, like a queen, is still glorious for beauty and supreme over hearts and minds. Published in all its fullness, with a clear statement of its efficacy and immutability, it is still the most acceptable news that ever reached the ears of mortals. Let me repeat one sentence. I believe that the best, surest, and most permanent way to fill a place of worship is to preach the gospel and to preach it and preach it and preach it with greater fervor, greater commitment, greater zeal, greater accuracy, greater for loyalty. Yes, yes, yes. But ladies and gentlemen, filling a place of worship on any other basis is not of any interest to me or anybody on this staff. The beauty of the gospel is still powerful in its attraction. And in all the change that we're about to go, remember, it is through that beautiful gospel that we intend to grow this church. Father, I pray that your people will be assured that all the changes that we will experience are nothing but good things. That they do not produce popery or high-mindedness or, or insecurity or less fervor for truth and the gospel. And I pray, O oh God, that the changes that we're about to undergo will do nothing but enhance our excitement and our thrill at chasing after the things of God with a greater enjoyment. Oh God, our enemy is a wily one and he can convince any of us, elders alike, that we ought to carve off the edges. We ought to pull back in clarity and please the crowd. I pray, O oh God, that you will drive us all from places of leadership who think such a dastardly thought. We are committed, O oh God, from the depths of our soul, with every fiber of our being, we are committed to your word and to the gospel that is more beautiful than we ever dreamed. A gospel that has made provisions for sinners such as we, a gospel that reminds us that we are forgiven no matter how we blew it last Sunday or last Monday or in the future. A gospel that provides a clarion promise of forgiveness. A gospel that provides safety in the midst of fear. And I pray, O oh God, that you will rally your people 
to a new found fresh commitment to the beauty of that gospel and for the a burden to share it more frequently. Now, Father, thank you again for all that you've provided. We look forward to what we're facing in these next few days. And I pray that you will prepare us, that none of us will look over our shoulder longing for the good old days, but we can look ahead of us and to the bright prospects of future ministry, to think that you might use a bunch of mavericks like Gracie Van to reach lost and dying men is a privilege indeed. Thank you for the privilege that I have, O oh God, to preach the good news of the gospel. Might your people flourish under its sound. We pray, as always, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming, guys. Good night.